0: Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. Each week, we bring you in-depth conversations with some of the biggest names in filmmaking. Today, you'll hear from director Michael Moore, who joined us at the 53rd New York Film Festival last fall for the U.S. premiere of his latest documentary. Where to Invade Next is Moore's decidedly political take on a travelogue, in which he invades nine European countries to steal their policies on a range of social issues, like college tuition, prison reform, Paid Vacation, Women's Rights, and more. The film lives up to Moore's reputation for provocative, surprising, and very funny filmmaking. Writing for RogerEbert.com, Godfrey Cheshire declared, In my view, it's one of the most genuinely and valuably patriotic films any American has ever made. During the New York Film Festival, Moore joined festival director Kent Jones for one of our HBO director's dialogues. Let's go now to that conversation.
1: Hi there this is Allison Goldberg from the Film Society's fundraising team. The Walter Reed Theater is turning 25 next year. Built in 1991 as a year-round home for film at Lincoln Center, the Walter Reed recently won the Village Voice Award for Best Movie Theater in New York. Manolo Dargis of The New York Times agrees, calling it one of the finest movie-watching rooms in the city. In honor of the theater's birthday, we're planning some long overdue renovations that will make this great theater even better, including a new screen, 4K and 16mm projectors, updated lighting and sound systems, and much more. But to make this all possible, we need your help. Naming a seat in the wall to read will help us accomplish these goals and lets you or a loved one become a permanent part of the theater's rich history. For more information about seat naming opportunities and the renovation project, visit filmlink.org wrt25.
2: Thank you. <coughs> you know, in the last couple of days when we were doing uh, um, uh, the Q&A after the film, uh, you said uh, on a couple of occasions, you said, you know, we are directors first and foremost, we are filmmakers first and foremost. And one of the things that you said that really struck me was you were talking about the ending of Where to Invade Next uh, you know, at the Berlin Wall when you were saying, well, we just shot and then we found that ending. But you know, you, know, you said you can always tell when, you said, I don't do second takes. You know, I don't do, like, you know, let's do that again so that it looks better or clearer or something like that. You know, wh- you can always tell. So it's just I just sort of wanted to start in that vein. Oh, okay. Um.
3: Art is more important than politics. <laughs> One hand. Well, that so was a very
2: tentative. <laughs> 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 That's okay. Well, they're processing it because
3: <laughs> Michael Moore just said that. So <laughs> I say it because... Um, If we as artists, as filmmakers, don't make a great film, one that people want to see and see again and tell other people to go see, if we've put the politics first, because this is an important issue and I must say this, ahead of the art, and the art suffers as a result, it's just another documentary that is either telling you things you already know or just preaching to the choir, or just whatever, then, then we have failed as political people by not putting the art first. It's 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 so important. I say this. I, I mean, I preach. I go to documentary classes. I tell the students. Um, I know you're. If you make documentaries, you're making them probably about issues you care deeply about. I'm so happy that you do care deeply about them. But please, please ask the question: How how is this going to work as a piece of cinema? How are we performing as artists here? Because if we do our job as artists, the message is gonna get to so many people and be so effective in reaching them. If, if you, <coughs> I mean, I remember when I, when I first came here 26 years ago to this festival with Roger and me, and I was like, how do I tell people, because they're asking me all these questions, what are your favorite documentaries? And, I didn't have a good answer because I hated documentaries. <laughs> and and um, I really, those of us who made Roger Me, we set out to make the anti-documentary. We set out to make a movie. I despise the word documentarian. I never use it. I ask journalists not to use it unless they're going to call Scorsese a fictionitarian <laughs> or Ridley Scott a fictionitarian. Quit calling documentary filmmakers documentarians. We're filmmakers. The author of the Steve Jobs book, Walter Isaacson, is an author. We don't try to diminish him because he wrote nonfiction, unlike a real writer, who can make up a story. <laughs> nor, but nor do we call the fiction writer a fiction whatever. We call that woman
2: a fictionist.
3: We call that woman or man an author. And when documentary filmmakers make their films as films, the films, the documentaries succeed. If they make it as documentarian, which means they're making medicine for you to eat or drink so that you uh, will get better and make the world better, then it isn't gonna work because we don't like to take medicine, especially when it tastes like castor oil. So that's an old reference. I don't know what's a younger... do re- young. We our generation, we raise kids with all sugary, gooey, happy stuff and making sure that they don't fall down or eat dirt or bugs or whatever. So we're like hovered over them for so long that we don't have a castor oil that we gave our kids. But basically bad tasting medicine. And and I think I think I don't think Michael Barker or Tom Bernard would mind if I Tell tales out of school, but I had this discussion with. Them. They, they are the people that run, uh, along with Dylan, uh, so, uh, Sony Pictures Classics, a wonderful, as you know, right distributor. And we're having this discussion about how uh, *Bowling for Columbine* uh, kicked off uh, a second wave of this modern-day documentary. So you can, you if you if you if you start with *Roger and Me*. I'm sorry that I make both these references mine, but I, they just I'm I'm just stating facts. Before Roger and me, in the history of cinema, there were nine documentaries that grossed a million dollars or more. That's it, nine. After Roger and me, there have been 129. So that you can mark the date there, um, and then it sort of it tapered off, and then exploded with Bowling for Columbine. And then, after, and then, and then, right away, Fahrenheit 9/11, which you know, um, broke Return of the Jedi's opening weekend record. They had held the record for the largest opening gross of any movie ever uh, under, I think, a thousand or 900 screens. So it broke that record, and still holds the record for documentary box office, and also the largest grossing um, Palm Door winner. So. That includes, so that includes Apocalypse Now, Pulp Fiction, et cetera, et cetera. And after that, boom, Inconvenient Truth, Supersize Me, uh, Spellbound, uh, right? You remember this wave of great, like, cinematic document, things you wanted to see in a movie theater with 200 other people, right? And there was this great wave. And then then this is where Barker and Bernard pick up. (laughs) That... Then all the distributors, especially the small distributors, decided every, we, have, we need more documentaries, buy documentaries. And documentaries that were made for television, which are great documentaries, and I had two television documentary series uh, with The Awful Truth and TV Nation, so I'm not opposed to TV. But documentaries that play well on HBO, that play well on POV, independent lens, should not be in movie theaters. They're they're two different. You're making them for two different audiences. Those of us who make them for movie theaters, first of all, have this in mind: a huge friggin' screen. I mean, this isn't huge, but for this theater, it's it's huge. Big enough. It's a beautiful. I, I love what you guys have done <laughs> with the whole place here. It's so. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. <laughs> no, <Nope. laughs> can we come back to that? I want to say yeah, something sure. about your <laughs> film center. Um, but uh, <clears> I made mean, a note of that. Well, I am an exhibitor. So I run and program three theaters in Michigan uh, that are all nonprofits. Is it year-round in Traverse City? Absolutely, year-round, 365 days of the year, yes. And um, we've we've been open for about uh, almost 400 weeks now. And, and for 90 of those weeks, uh, we've been in the top 10 grossing theaters in the country, in all of North America, for the film that was showing there that week. Um, and it's a town of 14,000 people. And when you look at the box office grosses for the week, it shows Lincoln Plaza, Sunset 5, Traverse City, State Theater, uh, <laughs> Coolidge Corner, <laughs> E Street Landmark in D.C., Embarcadero um, Center. Um, uh, so it's kind of a cool list to see a town of 14,000, cities of millions. But I, I, can I, just, I don't, I don't want to get off the subject. I'm sorry about that. But I, I, I feel so strongly as a filmmaker that we're the only art form that has no say over how our art is exhibited. We're the only artists that do this. If I was a painter or sculptor, or if I was having a show down in Chelsea, uh, I would I pick the frames, I set the lights. You know, I now realize I can't go to the 3,000 theaters and do that. But at the very least, there's no quality control. And all you have to do, if you're a filmmaker, go watch your film at the Paramus Six. And think about all the time and effort you put into your art, watching it being butchered by a really bad theater—bad sound system, bad screen.
2: Well, we're d- we're in in uh, most multiplexes. The projectionist is just like one guy pressing a bunch of buttons and, and popping the corn. Yeah, popping the corn. That's right. And they don't replace the bulbs, so you know, you get a very dim image that's very common. Or they f- sometimes
3: forget to change from the 3D yeah. uh, lens to the regular one. Yeah. It's just awful. Yeah. It's just awful. So it's like, even a rock band that's completely stoned <laughs> will show up at 5 o'clock for the sound check because they care if you can hear it. We put our film at the end of the mix in a DHL bag, gone, and then have no say over how it's shown to the people. It's It's... It's... It will. It is my 2016 crusade as a member of the Directors Guild to to have us. I want the Directors Guild to have like a good housekeeping stamp, where we will certify theaters. So in your town, if you live in Seattle or Portland, Boise, whatever, has the. If you see the DGA insignia on that, that means we as the filmmakers can tell you you're going to have a great cinematic experience in this theater. Uh, that's my. I haven't said that publicly. So I. <laughs> But I care deeply about this and I've constructed these theaters in Michigan are, you know, the MPAA last year listed us They list they they wrote this story on their website of the ten best theaters in the world and number one was the state theater of Traverse City, Michigan It's I can't I I can't say enough about what if you ever are in northern Michigan, which you won't be (laughs) But if you stop into my theater, you'll be transported back to the 1940s I've, it's all built rebuilt. So it's a hundred-year-old movie palace that had been shut down for years and dilapidated, and I completely re—I put it back into the 1940s. How many seats? Six hundred seats. Uh, there was no balcony. It had been twinned. It was just awful. I put the balcony back in. I have an organ that rises out of the stage, that plays before the movie. Um, um, it's uh, the the seats are the most comfortable seats that you can imagine in to watch a movie in. Um, w- when I went to, to pick out the seats, because I had to, you know, pick them out, I was actually I was I was going to be on Oprah, and um, they had sent a plane for me because I was up the lake in Traverse City, so she's in Chicago, so they sent a plane for me to come on to be on the show, and I said, hey, could the plane come like r- early in the morning, and would you mind if I brought if could we stop in Grand Rapids on the way, because Grand Rapids is the theater seating capital of the world, okay? okay? It's like four companies that make all the theater seats, except for the Italian ones that you're sitting in. Well, that's an Alice Tully. You can tell. Well, Alice Tully, yeah, they're yeah. Italian. No, but you can yeah. look at the seats. Mm-hmm. Well, I I can tell by I can't fit into them very well. Okay. You know, for one thing, they're made for Italians who <laughs>
2: oh, eat healthy and, and, they have, and, and they have long vacations, uh, move
3: yeah. around, and have a lot of vacation and an enormous amount of sex. So. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Isn't there a company down in South America though that makes theater seats too? Oh no, it's a
3: company in China. In fact, right. one of the companies in Grand Rapids, I think, makes some of their stuff in China, but then puts the American label on it. But I, so we went down, so I, <clears throat> I got some people I know in Traverse City on this Oprah day. I got a pregnant woman, I got a short person, I got a tall person, I got a guy with a bad back, um, and me, and we all got on this private jet, flew to Grand Rapids, and went to, I went to all four <laughs> theaters to sit in them. And, and the short person would sit behind the and the pregnant woman would try to get out of the chair and the guy with a bad back would see if he'd cl- complain at all and um, And we got we came to the the last one and they were like the not the big fame like you've heard of American seating Irwin seating this is all there so um, We sit in these seats and we're, oh my god. This is so comfortable. What is this and it's a family-owned company and he said, uh, it's the, uh, well, I licensed the 79 Mustang seat from Ford. It's the most comfortable car bucket seat. For real? Yeah. He says, well, think about it. When they make a, a really, when they, when they used to make a really good car seat, you may drive in that car for 10 and 12 hours on a trip. You can't sit in a theater seat for, you know. It, so, so for two hours, you're going to sit in an er, ergonomically, you know. But but it's all it's not it doesn't look like car seats in the movie theater. It's all plush red velvet. It's he turned it into a theater seat with a cup holder, yes. and it is the most comfortable seat uh, uh, to to sit in. And it was a hundred dollars less than the other seats. And I said, "Ha, okay, how does the best seat become a hundred dollars less?" He said, "Because all our parts and all the thing is made in Michigan." I said, "You're kidding." He says, "Every bolt, every screw, the the, le- the leather, the this, all done in Michigan." I said, oh my God. Then again, I have to say, how do you do this for $100 seat less? And he said, well, um, I just, I like the, if you, did you see my film? The the Italian, the clothing people about getting richer. He says, I already have one or two vacation homes. I don't need five. So I can, I can undercut them price wise because I'm wealthy and happy and I don't need to be wealthier. It's like, Wow. And um, so we bought our seats there. And uh, I've, I've, the seats are in so many theaters around the country because I've told this story so much. I'd get no commission for it. But (laughs) I, because I just want you to be enjoyed and, you know, enjoy sitting in the theater and not have somebody's head. I'm against stadium seating. Stadium seating for, we hate it. Filmmakers hate it. Because the high back, especially for a comedy, muffles the laughter in the theater. So, or your laugh goes right into the hard back and doesn't go. You need in a comedy, you need the contagious nature of laughter in the theater. It isolates the person. You're sitting in these like booths almost. You know, you need to see other heads. You need to. You need to. This is a communal thing. This. It's not the movies unless it's a group of people and you're sitting there with strangers in the dark. It's not a movie. Watching Lawrence of Arabia on your iPhone. I don't know what that's called, but you're not watching Lawrence of Arabia. I I don't have a name for it yet, but I'm just, you know, post office issues the Mona Lisa stamp. Okay, yes, that's the Mona Lisa, but that's not the Mona Lisa. It's a stamp of the Mona Lisa. We wouldn't call that the Mona Lisa. So, So anyway, so I believe in huge screens, comfortable seats, great sound. And audiences. And audiences, I and I, when we pack them in uh, every week, they're they're watching Meet the Patels today. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I'm sure we'll be one of the highest-grossing theaters in the country this week for that film. And um, and and one rule, one, uh, you know, popcorn is two dollars. Pop is I mean, soda yeah. Yeah. is two dollars. Um, candy's a yeah. dollar. You can get it, You know, so families can come. Right. There's no ticket higher than $8.50 uh, if, you're, if you're a member, which is really cheap to be a member. It's uh, 6 bucks to yeah. watch a movie there on a Friday night. What's the one rule, though? The one rule is if we catch you on your cell phone or texting or if that glowing screen comes on in any way, shape, or form, yeah. you are banned from the theater for life. There you go. Life.
2: <laughs> you show that, that, that Alamo Drafthouse? Uh,
3: no, I came I'm up sure. with the idea. Okay. We he stole it you? he stole it from me okay. yeah let it be normal. no 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 and and in fact i've been tr- we are so and because we're northern michiganders so we're close to canada so it's like a very polite area you know so people actually obey the rule and um um but the um <laughs> i mean we've been wanting to catch somebody because i want to make a psa to run before the movies <laughs> what i'm going to say to the first person we catch you know, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rescind the band, but you're going to have to play a r- the role in the PSA, and then we're going to reenact dragging him out of the theater, out into the middle of Main Street with a, with a Joan of Arc uh, post and tie him to it and light him on fire. Yeah. The last part will be special effects. <laughs> but uh, but, <laughs> but it's ruined the movie-going experience, yeah, and especially been, yeah. anybody over the age of 40 or 45 man, the crowds have really dropped going to the movies and, and and I got them to come back because nobody likes to go to a movie on a Friday or Saturday night anymore because of the way the kids have, and they've got arcades in the lobby and everything. Yeah. What was I in the middle of talking about when I got off on that No, we uh, were talking
2: about being, fi- you were talking about being a filmmaker and I mean, the, actually, something else that you had said is that you used to bring the theater seat with you, right? Right, yes, we because used to carry
3: a rickety theater seat in the back of the crew van
2: to remind you
3: to remind all of us, us that the finished. audience is a yeah. member of our crew. Right. That this my film isn't finished till you leave, and do something, so you're part of this. I'm not doing this for you. Um, people keep asking me, "Oh, you haven't made a film in six years. Why has it been six years?" Well, again, I just think, well, they haven't seen. They didn't see my last film, "At the End of Capitalism: A Love Story." I said, "I'm tired. I'm tired of being the poster boy for Fox News. I'm tired of being, you know, uh, constantly in need of security." Uh I, I long for death threats because One thing I've learned from the security guys is that once they get it out in the threat, they don't do any. The the priest that's going to hurt you does not issue a death threat. They cathartically get it out through the angry email they send you. So you you want the death threats. Uh, What you don't want is the actual attempt. You don't want the death. So after six attempts on my life with various weapons, and then the final one being the guy that built the fertilizer bomb. You probably know this story and was going to put it under our house. And then his AK-47 accidentally went off and some neighbor heard it. Called the cops and he was arrested, and he went to prison uh, you didn 't hear about this? yeah, why not? <laughs> it's kind of odd isn 't it? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, because but the security people thought the more we keep this quiet I mean he had, there was a trial. you can look it up in the chicago papers he was He was from uh, illinois and uh, and so he went to he went to prison and um, but that was kind of that sort of kind of totally fucked up our lives uh, in a profound uh, way, because then I had to have these guys living with us 24-7, and uh, so it was a rotten way to live. And I didn't want to keep doing this. Uh, if uh, if people weren't gonna rise up and do something about all this stuff, I'm not gonna be the only one out there. I'm not the only one out there. I know I'm not the only one. The, a month before the Iraq war, there were a million of us on the street here in New York and across the country. I mean, there were largest demonstrations in the history of the country, so. But you know, I because I have access to media, and I have this the bully pulpit, so to speak. But at that time, to be alone out there, and I didn't mean to go off on David Remnick and David uh, and Bill Keller, but the liberal establishment in this town
2: everybody got in line and got in line and supported the war.
3: The New Yorker, the New York Times, Al Franken, 29 U.S. Democratic senators. Um, I would turn on shows and I'd hear liberals berate me for the Oscar speech, you know, um, I remember actually on that night turning the TV on back in the hotel room in LA and watching all the, all the, uh, you know, they have local shows after the, um, as I told you the other day, the local shows after the Oscars, cause it's only nine o'clock out there. So they have a, like a post Super Bowl wrap up all the local commentators and I just kept flipping the dial well that's the end of Michael Moore well that's the last we'll hear of him why would he do that why would he do that he got a big standing ovation like five seconds earlier why would he do that so you know I actually I believed them I thought I was over I mean I was really uh, I was shunned and and we uh, we had a uh, I'd already had the deal signed and the first check cashed for my next film and um, and they called my agent uh, the next week and said, we're done, we're out. We don't want any part of him. And, um,
2: and then everything went so well in Iraq, so, you know. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it, it doesn't help the world that I was right. We now are fucked in this whole refugee crisis, crisis, not a crisis, it was manufactured by the United States of America. We went into the Middle East, pulled out Ripped out the infrastructure, literal infrastructure, political infrastructure, religious infrastructure that was somehow holding it all together, for better or worse. None of our business, only to the extent that we should always be supportive of any group of people trying to find their freedom. But other than that, you know, and we created this thing and then we're like, no, we'll take 5,000 refugees. (laughs) Are you kidding me? You know does anybody feel any shame I mean it's just it's just uh, anyways I but I was saying something about being a director well, also, I, I,
2: <laughs> I also I want to interject that we're showing a film in, in the coming days called homelander or rocky or zero and I really urge everybody to check it out um, it's a movie made um, right before the invasion and right after the invasion it's a pretty devastating experience but it's an amazing film yeah it's um
3: in, in uh, Fahrenheit 911, the two producers of this film, of my film here, um, are people I've worked with for a couple of decades, and they made their own film, were nominated for the Oscars, uh, called Trouble the Water about Katrina. Remember this a few years ago? In beautiful film. They're sitting right over here Carl Deal and Tia Lesson. And uh, <laughs> they, um, uh, they offered to go uh, to Iraq the month before the bombs were dropping, to grab the footage. They got the footage that's in Fahrenheit 9-11 because I wanted to do essentially what he apparently does beautifully. Show the Iraq that's about to be destroyed. And, And I don't know if you remember all the hits I took for that for showing the kids flying kites and the wedding ceremony and the happy life and how could he? They were living under a brutal dictator, Saddam Hussein, and look at him just showing like life is just, you know, why he's like that Nazi filmmaker who and, you know, was brought in to show how they're treating your, the Jews really nice in this village. fellow
2: filmmaker, Lenny Riefenstahl? Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, that was... Uh, no, not, no, not Lenny Riefenstahl. You're talking that, about... That
3: uh, Al Mazel's compared me to him, to, to her, I mean, to Lenny Riefenstahl. Really? You know? Yeah. Yeah. But that's... I shouldn't say that on this day. I'm sorry. Um, he's a wonderful person and, and means a lot to all of us as documentary filmmakers. But the old school of documentary filmmakers... Listen, they heard me say at the beginning on this stage that I didn't like documentaries, and I was making the anti-documentary, mm-hmm. and the old school thought, okay, fuck you, and they made sure that Roger Mee wasn't even nominated that year, mm-hmm. and and I was not allowed into the academy for pff, 13 years. I couldn't even vote, mm-hmm. you know, and then and then finally after bowling for Columbine, you know, then they, well, how could they not let me in, so... Mm-hmm. Then I was let in and then I've made it my mission ever since to democratize the branch and to, and to not have seven people picking these films yeah. for the Oscars. And so I, I worked hard for years on getting the policy change and now all the whole branch votes. We used to have, three years ago, four years ago, we had zero African Americans, zero in the documentary branch. And I pushed against this. Now it's I think there's 13. There were 140 members, now there's almost 300. Um, there's, it's more diverse, we have more foreign members. I think it's almost parody now with, I, I'm guessing, I'm pretty sure it is with women and men. Um, but this is like me banging my head against the wall and upsetting the old guard, and um, uh, who believe that documentaries shouldn't be subjective, they should be objective, and they should be, you know, just a fly on the wall. Mm. And I always thought that was the biggest lie because the edit room is the, is the cathedral of subjectivity. What you choose to put in the film is a subjective Where you decision, Where you, how you interpret yep. it, mm-hmm. the story you're gonna tell. It's completely subjective. We are human beings. We are subjective beings. Mm-hmm. If by what you mean objective is the facts, yes, mm-hmm. as subje- you can have the most subjective film, but your facts had better be correct. If you say the sun rises in the east, it should rise in the east. Mm-hmm. The facts have to be absolutely correct and I was telling you the story there backstage about, I mean, we hire, you know, people that used, to, you know, were ex-New Yorker fact checkers to. I, I have them there's a, come in and rip the film apart. I want them to find something wrong. I don't put things in the film that that I'm not absolutely certain are correct. You know, I'm sitting there in the, your theater here watching people go, "No way!" <laughs> you know, it's like you've got to be kidding me, right? Yeah. Country after country, if you've seen the film. So I, every film I put up on the website for the film, and this will be up on the website, our fact Bible. Mm-hmm. And every fact I state in the film, I, I source it and you can read the stories uh, so you don't have to even take my word
2: for it if you don't want to. You can, uh, you, everything is... What part of the movie are they reacting to when they say that? Have you oh, the French... The, the, the lamb skewers over couscous for right. third graders. Right. I mean, <laughs> are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. You know, yeah.
3: um, that, that they have that many weeks paid vacation. But a lot of it was the stuff, though, that we were surprised. I didn't know that Portugal hasn't re- arrested a single person for using drugs in 15 years. Did yes. you know that? No. I didn't know that. Did you know that Austria, you can vote at 16 now, and a half a dozen other countries? I didn't know that. Uh, you know, it was it was it was a, a number of things. That prison, I filmed that prison. Everything in the film I shot this last year, but I shot it first. The the prison in Norway. Mm in 2006 for Sicko, because we were over there to show their healthcare system. Oh, okay. And, and one of the things about the Norwegian healthcare, the, Nor- the government of Norway owns a, like a, a huge spa in the Canary Islands. And like with the Germans, you can get your doctor to write a prescription for a free two weeks or three weeks at this spa <laughs> in the Canary Islands. And I just thought, if we put this in the film, no one is gonna believe this. Yeah. We're not gonna believe this prison. Or, or I interviewed the, f- the, the government philosopher the, the the Norway Norway owns their oil. They don't allow Exxon and Shell to own the oil. They can license it, but they can't own it. The people own the oil in Norway, and then the, so then the money goes into the people, into the schools and everything, the roads. <laughs> uh, we had actually when we were filming this movie all across Europe, we were like, we had a bet going that the first the first person to spot a pothole got a hundred dollars, <laughs> hundred and fifty if you saw a, a a tire on the side of the road, yeah. you know, and we're like, we, right, we just never hit a pothole. It was, the, <laughs> it was so weird, but, because um, we're just not used to it, yeah. you know. They, the idea of a pothole over there is just like, and that was even in countries that not as wealthy as Germany, but um, uh,
2: anyway, so. You were talking about, uh, you know, insisting, and this is something that's really borne out in the film that you're, Optimistic, and that um, you know, there's there's a been a certain tendency on the left to be not optimistic and to kind of like you know um, uh, say okay everything's fucked, you know. Well, and
3: it then the right absolves game. us from doing anything, right? The, the, exactly. To feel powerless, hopeless, just to say they're all crooks. Yep. Um, Always. And yeah. Always. Right. And, and or there was the sort of liberal faux intellectual version of it very prevalent in this town, I'm sad to say, of, of well, the Michael, the issue is much more complicated than <laughs> that. Uh, I don't think you've really explored exactly what this all means. And, uh, you know, <laughs> it was just like, dude, you know, you really should take the stick out of your ass. And, <laughs> you know, sometimes it is as simple as waking up in the morning and saying, let Mandela out of prison.
4: Yeah.
3: We don't need to keep him there anymore. Come on. just Just do it. Mm-hmm. Just do it. You know, it's it's kind of, um, some things aren't complicated. Well, when you
2: keep racking up all the things that make it impossible, all the things that make and it difficult, all the things. Yes, and
3: people keep, like it, they come up with this list of why this can't happen or that can't happen. Or, you know, did you know that Italy has 12% unemployment? You know, it's like, what's your point? Yeah. You know, we have a lot of good ideas in this country. Should nobody emulate them because we've had 45 school shootings this year? Mm-hmm. You imagine somebody in Germany going, "Let's not do that American idea," because they've had forty-five school shootings this year. Mm. Well, what's there are ones at Apple and ones in Orange, you know? It, it's like, but I know I am going to have to kind of, you know, listen to that a little bit right. because everybody's right. smarter than the average bear, right. and uh, you know, and and I think one thing that also gets lost with me is is to um, is it, sh- it you shouldn't forget that I uh, I come from the Midwest. Um, uh, and I come from a working-class family, mm-hmm. and I have a high school education in about a year and a half of college. So my the invisible audience in my head when I'm making the film mm-hmm. isn't the Upper West Side where I have an apartment and live much of the year, especially when I'm working here. It's the apartment I have in Michigan,
2: mm-hmm.
3: and that's where... That's the audience I'm thinking of I'm thinking of the audience in my theater of midwesterners of working class people, of people who have a hard scrabble existence who Michigan is not a pleasant place. Michigan never recovered you know it's a it's an awful sad place um, you know I'm sure you've seen the stories in Detroit you've seen what Detroit looks like. Um, Beirut looks better than Detroit mm-hmm. you know it's um. I, hope I didn't offend Beirut <laughs> <Some> <laughs> The Lebanese are beautiful people um, but it's sad it's just uh it's just sad and so but i'm not I'm not really thinking of of the audience in this hood where I live half the time I'm thinking of that other audience and and I'm approaching it from a you know the son of a union member um who was grateful to be able to go to the dentist because we had benefits and it didn't cost anything and
2: uh, <laughs> the, the, well i mean the midwest has a proud that's a proud political history i mean for anyone who cares to study it and go right. back that's progressive politics that's where yes. abolitionism flourished yeah. yes right it's not
3: all whatever people think that it is i don't know what it what that means but when i think when i put in the film nobody nobody had heard that before that michigan was the first english speaking government in the entire world to eliminate the death penalty in 1848 um, but that's, you know, a lot of, a lot of what that, uh, upper New York and Michigan, there's a lot of migration in between the Syracuse, r- Buffalo, Rochester area a- into Michigan, and, um, and so a lot of the early suffragette stuff, a lot of the, you know, abolitionists, strong abolitionists, uh, started there with, with, uh, with Michigan, and I love that Dylan line, um, 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 probably not going to say it right, but the uh, the country I come from
2: uh, with God on our side. With yeah, you know,
3: the country I come from is called the Midwest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. And he comes from there, and so do the Cohen brothers. Yep, and Al Franken, who has apologized for supporting the war in Iraq. <laughs>
2: But it is, and 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 to just to elaborate on that, team, this is something that we were discussing the other night about uh, Obama. That you know, when he turned out in the beginning, you know, to be not exactly what everybody wanted, and they all abandoned him. You know, some people complained about him, you know, rightfully about you know certain decisions mm-hmm. that he made. But he you know, you yeah, but you never abandoned him. You never just no, said, oh, you know, God, no. He's a tool I of the system. But believe me, a lot of people have.
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean. Um, yeah, but you could say the same thing about me. I had a show on NBC mm-hmm. that was owned by General Electric at the time, so I guess I was a tool of the system, mm-hmm. you know. But that's again, that's faux, faux intellectualism. Right. The person likes to sit back with their cynicism, so yeah. they don't have to do anything, mm-hmm. you know. Um, you know, uh, but when I do that, when I when I don't participate, I don't I don't recycle because yeah. I know what recycling is. I know what these blue cans are. It's a way to sageage uh, guilt and conscience, and I've done my part. Oh, look at me, I recycle. Really? I did So when I had my TV show, we, I, 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 we followed the recycling trucks. This was back, back in the '90s. and of course they just went one time, one, one of the shows that went right to the dump, you know, they just took the dump. Another one it went on a barge or a ship, actually. We transport a lot of our plastic bottles to India and other places where it's recycled. Um, Where they work in these horrible working conditions, but 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 when you're living, you know on the you know 25th floor of your Upper East Side, (laughs) whatever And you got your nice blue and green and yellow cans, you know, it makes you feel like you're doing something and And I don't want that feeling. I don't want that feeling that I've done my part because I did this I'm not don't stop recycling. We should I'm just saying it's for my own, my own head. I wanna, I wanna know that we're, that the planet, we are, the planet isn't fucked. The planet's gonna be fine. Everybody, the planet's gonna die, you know, the Earth is dying, the Earth is never gonna die until that moment when it's supposed to explode. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's when it dies. No, the, we're, we're the ones, that, the planet's gonna take care of us. The planet's gonna remove us like it has removed other things that it didn't like. And it will remove us for our treatment of the planet, but, you know, so, um, but as a director, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. You know I don't drink coffee too, I just. Uh, <laughs> you keep apologizing. <laughs> I know.
2: <laughs> I'm <Get> yeah. <laughs> we, let's open it up for questions from the audience. Uh, where's the, yeah, right up there, and the mic, yeah. Uh, I saw your
5: film yesterday and I loved it um, and what it kind of reinforced for me is that we do live in a bubble in America and I didn't know most of the things that you were telling me and I was sitting next to someone who I dragged to this movie and I was telling someone yesterday or today on the Upper West Side, a woman, and I said, you have to go see this film. It'll blow your mind about what is going on outside of America and and she said, who is it? And I said, your name. And she said, oh, I hate him. And, and I said, why? And she said, well, he's always trying to be so funny about this stuff. And I was, I was, what I was really trying to do was exactly what you were saying. I was like, I saw this film that I wanna share with you, but because of your whatever, you're not gonna allow me to share that and you're probably not gonna even give the film a chance. And it was just kind of amazing to me because it was literally kind of reinforced what I got from your film was that there's this other way that we could be living and, and we could all be making a difference if we were kind of more aware of what's going on outside of America. And, and I, I don't get that from the television or the media and I have to go searching for it. So it's not really a question. It was more of something I just wanted to, to share with you.
3: Well, and this was an Upper West Side woman? That...
5: Oh, yeah. <laughs> and her son is a film student at AFI. Uh-huh. And, um, and what does she do? I have no idea. I don't think she does anything. Uh, she just was so dismissive of of me. Then then she started talking about all the bad films that she goes and sees whenever she goes to a film festival. So I kind of ended the conversation. And strangely enough, this was at a cold-pressed juice bar where you're supposed to have more enlightened conversations. But... But it was just indicative of of a kind of attitude that I'm from New York, I live in Los Angeles right now, and I love coming back to New York, but I do find that there is a certain kind of liberal intellectualism that I was raised amongst that is very dismissive of anything that sees um, hope and, and optimism for our future as a country.
3: Right. It's, yeah... Well, to her credit, though, and to the Upper West Side liberal intellectuals, I mean, they have lived through a lot. Yeah, we, yeah. we have not had many victories in our lifetime. Yeah, yeah. None of us ever would ex- In 2006, if any of us had said that a guy whose middle name was Hussein would be the President of the United States in two years, yeah. they would have thought we were nuts. Yeah, yeah. So, to, I mean, to understand their, their frustration is built up over the years. Yeah, um, I,
5: I, I didn't condemn her... I just wanted to kind of break through that.
3: I would like to condemn her um, (laughs) now that I've said that. All right. First of all, her loathing of me is a second only to my own for myself. So (laughs) that's number one. (laughs) So whatever she said is no worse than what I'm thinking about me in my head for a a good part of the day. Secondly, it is a class thing. Kids from Flint don't go to the AFI Film School. Yeah. So we from the middle from the middle class, the working class. Um, you know, if you're African American, sometimes it's the made the comment is made if you're a woman. Um, it uh, you know the code, so you get it. We also know that our sense of humor, especially from the Irish working class that I grew up in. Is is very prevalent. It's dark. It has to be dark It's a pretty dark existence <laughs> It's that or drinking and you know, so I chose the humor route Some of our best are though are both our drinkers and humorists <laughs> um, but um, Yeah, I think that that's just I think that um, That's okay. I use humor because I want to reach people. Noam Chomsky doesn't use humor because Noam's speaking to us. And so we read Noam, and we need Noam, but Noam isn't going to play at the Paramus 6. That's my job. Noam does his job, I do my job. My job is to reach the masses, and I'm one of the few people on the left who have crossed over into the mainstream and into middle America with tens of millions of people going to my movies. Um, I love the film forum. I go to the film forum, but I'm not the film forum and that's okay We need the film forum. Please support the film forum, but that's that's not my job My job is to reach people and humor is the best way to reach them and if you don't believe that Ask Groucho Mark Twain Richard Pryor Lenny Bruce uh, George Carlin These are all pretty angry people they were all pretty angry at the social condition, and um, um, and they were brilliant. They understood that humor was was the vehicle to hop on, to reach the people, and you need to laugh while you're showing people some awful stuff. And and for her to say that I'm just you know making fun of the stuff or being too funny or being the class clown or whatever, I take that as a compliment because. Yeah. You know, that's, I've believed from the beginning, and i try to encourage other documentary filmmakers to use humor, um, because, because, oh, I know, they're, they're over here, they're sitting over, my friends are sitting here thinking, don't say what you're gonna say, but, you know, you just, what we do with that theater seat in the van, or what we say to ourselves, because how do people go to the movies? Honey, let's go to the movies tonight. What do you wanna go to? Oh, how about if we go to that movie on? No, fill in the blank. You know what I'm saying? Don't say it right. Don't say it. Okay.
5: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
3: fill in the blank of, of wonderful issues of doc, you could, that documentaries are made on that people don't go to. Watch them on TV, yes. Definitely. In the home, yes. But you've worked all week. If you come from the working class, you think I've worked my ass off all week. I'm going to the movies. It's the only thing I can afford. I can't afford the hundred and seventy-five dollar ticket to the Detroit Pistons. The the bleacher seats to see the Tigers are, you know, sixty bucks. Uh to go to the U2 concert was two hundred and eighty dollars. But to go to the movies, from my theater it's six bucks to any place outside of this island, you could still see a movie for 10 bucks. It's the only entertainment left for the working people of this country, the working poor and the poor. It's the only thing, if you wanna go out on a date, if you wanna start a relationship with somebody, can't even go to friggin' dinner unless it's at Popeyes. Dinner for two is gonna cost you at least 40 bucks. Dinner, movie for two can go for 10 or less. So I honor that, and I respect that, and I know that that's where the change is going to occur, not on the Upper West Side of New York. In fact, with no offense, those of us from Michigan and the other places, while we greatly admire everything about this city, and I love this city very much, um, you know, in the end, we went down the toilet, and there was no hand there to pull us out and the liberal or the Democratic Party way of doing things didn't save us. So we realized a long time ago that the Calvary wasn't coming.
2: All over the country. <laughs> yeah, Calvary not just Michigan.
3: That's right, they're not coming. So you gotta pull yourself out of this.
2: The other lesson is don't talk about movies at a cold-pressed juice bar, right? <laughs> that are what? Oh, at a cold-pressed juice <laughs> <Yeah>. bar? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't there also the question, Michael? Of like, you know, there's uh, when I when I was young, there was a whole a- anybody who tried to be inspiring. The the idea of a hero was um, uh, anathema. People just didn't want, you know, the uh, the, the heroic was no good. Um, there was no mo- there was supposed to be no such thing as inspiration. But you you know, that's if you're going to throw that out, then what do you build from? Nothing. But I. I
3: and my role I don't see my role as the hero of this but I but I do and we talk about but you're this You're
2: trying to inspire people.
3: Oh, I'm trying, Yes, and more. I want I'm your stand-in. You know, you're not going to maybe get to the end of that corporate headquarters or you're not going to be able to go, but I'm going to go there. And I want you, if I do the movie right, I want you to cathartically feel that you're there and that you're going and that you're like, "Yeah." You know, I want I, once if I do my job That connection is made with the individual audience member where they realize I'm just there in their place I'm not the person that's gonna fix it I'm not the hero but I am you because you have the same feelings and you think it's you think that the crap we're feeding our kids in school is wrong I know you do and I think you think it's wrong that we have created a prison industrial complex that is incarcerating the african-american population to the extent that in a state like Florida one out of three black men can't vote not the men in prison. Black men, one out of three, have been removed from the voting rolls. It's the only way Republicans could have gotten elected in these years is by, it's through this incarceration process. Don't worry, there wasn't a wanna see conference. Nobody sat around a table and said, Hey, I got a good idea on how we can keep those blacks from voting. You know? But it it was an unintended wonderful consequence for white racist. America and um, Gerrymandering
2: on the other hand, that's something else.
3: <laughs> yeah, and gerrymandering rigs the card game yeah. that that helps those two things together Have have really helped.
0: I'm sorry to keep talking so much Yes, uh, Ms. Moore, I wanted to ask you you said the time you spent about a couple of years from your most previous film to now uh, Talk about what the pros and cons of that what it was it like? you know taking your time making this film you know the process?
3: The the time, I I, I didn't, the six years in between Capitalism was starting this, I didn't didn't make the film over six years, yeah, it was made over the last year. Um,
2: And you were going through a tough time during those years, you were saying? Yeah,
3: yeah, my dad died uh, a year and a half ago, I got divorced last year, so I'm just like everybody else, everybody's, we all go through these moments in life, right, you need to kind of take a moment, take a breath, and... But actually, I I came out of that not depressed, but kind of liberated in the sense of of thinking life was good <laughs> and let's live life. And that's what my dad you know that's the way my dad lived. That's how he taught me. And I think he'd be bummed out if I was sitting around not doing anything. So um, so I did that. But I wrote a book um, called Here Comes Trouble. It's a it's a it's a two thousand short stories from my life. I wrote them as short stories. They're constructed as short stories, but it's all nonfiction. So um, I did that. And uh, then I, I decided to start helping downtowns in Michigan by refurbishing their m- closed-up movie palaces. And so I've got the three that I run, or am part of, and then I and then I have, um, and then there's another half dozen in Michigan, and they revitalize the downtowns. It's just like, it's in our downtown now, that used to be 50% boarded up stores. The occupancy, the, uh, I mean, the occupancy rate is 100%. You, you can't get a place in downtown that's unheard of in Michigan. So, a couple years ago, the Republican businessmen in town gave me their Man of the Year award, and because uh, <laughs> everybody's making money, I think. But um,
2: um, do you have any cold pressed juice bars? Though? No, I- and, and
3: <laughs> every time you say that, I keep thinking of the, the Woody Allen uh, in Annie Hall, where he played <laughs> a plate of mashed yeast. No, no, you like you keep you keep saying cold pressed juice bar. Okay. And, where, where to, Tony Robbins keeps saying, Woody, Woody Allen says, "Let's get some." I say. He said Jews. He didn't say juice. And, and you no, know, it's like. But yes, we do need more cold press Jews in Northern Michigan. So please, Upper West Siders, come and join us. You will be welcomed. It's a wonderful, polite,
2: kind area.
3: And there's your 140 character takeaway from this. Uh,
2: <laughs> As opposed to the, the uterus thing the other day.
3: Yeah. No, no, you're right. Yeah, we <laughs>
6: Yes. Hi, Mr. Moore. Um, I have a question. I want to know what your opinion on new media uh, is and how uh, individuals can, uh, you know, without an already, uh, you know, wide following, can uh, spread a message, especially with humor and things like that.
3: Well, I'm, I'm a big supporter of it. I'm on I'm on Twitter. I have almost 2 million followers on Twitter. I have almost 1.3 million very close Facebook friends. Um <laughs> uh, like every baby boomer I'm very nervous every time I hit send hoping I don't send everything in my photo album. Um, so like <laughs> it's uh no I think this is all great. It's a great way to communicate. I like I like Twitter. I like because it forces you to edit. I love editing. I believe we can always say things with fewer words and and it'd be better with fewer words. So I like all of that. I think it's all, all good in a great way to reach people. We don't want to lose real journalism. We need that desperately. It can't all be Gawker. Um, and um, and I just read something that Jonathan Franzen uh, was writing and uh, talking about when he's writing a book in terms of how you've got to separate yourself from the noise. The reason nobody knew we were making this film is that we unplugged. Yeah. And so um, and by unplugging, nobody knew. And the and the. We we were filming in all these countries, and the media in this country didn't know. And but we were the top story in many countries because I'm not I didn't have a wig on. I mean I was oh, it was me, and cameras would show up, and we'd be on the local news in Slovenia. But you know because the networks have closed most of their bureaus, there are no foreign bureaus hardly anymore. So if they have a stringer there, he might see me on the Slovenian news, and he he calls up. Uh, the newspaper chain here says he needs $10 an hour for a Slovenian translator, because t- Michael Moore's here and something is going on. But they won't pay the $10 an hour for the translator. So we got through, through scot-free because capitalism worked again in our favor um, by, by ch- you know, choking journalism so the parent company can make more money. It guaranteed that we would have privacy uh, in making uh, this film. In the same way that GE, I'm allowed to be on NBC because we were the number one rated show in that time slot, so I made GE money, and that's their God, not Democrats or Republicans or any of that other stuff. They disagreed with everything I stood for, but as long as it made them money, that gave that was my protector. The capitalism, the the big flaw of capitalism, I think Lenin said that um, the capitalist will sell you the rope to hang himself with. I mean, that's... That's been that's been I've been able to keep doing this because as long as the films and the TV shows make them money, when they don't make money anymore, people stop going. Then you won't hear from me. You know, well, you'll hear from me thanks to social media. That was their biggest mistake: is eliminating the filter. You know that they can't. It's. I was thinking of Pauline Kael. You know, the, she wrote this awful review of Roger Me and lied all the way through it about it. And that wasn't thirty thousand jobs that was lost. It was only ten thousand. <laughs> I <clears throat> I told her, I said, you'd make a great Holocaust denier. Wasn't, well, it wait, wasn't six million. It was only one million, you
2: well, know. She, she panned Shoah. Huh? She panned Shoah. She panned Shoah, yeah. Yeah, she did. Oh,
3: I, I don't think, I've twice now spoken ill of the dead in here, and this is not right. <laughs> no, it's not. I'm no, serious. I'm, I'm nervous it's about just, that. Yeah. But, but Pauline, I just want to give this example. She goes, it wasn't 30,000 jobs lost. It was only 10,000. And um, And um, I, wrote, I, <laughs> I Wrote a letter to the New Yorker and I'm sorry this kind of again shows my Midwesternness. I didn't they didn't have letters To the editor at that time. It's very recent that they've had letters. I Couldn't correct the record. I asked them to correct it. They wouldn't they, they wouldn't I asked if I could write a letter They wouldn't publish it. So back then shit could get said people could be lied to They can't do that anymore you write that, you write that, I can, I can put up the statistics from the Bureau of Labor and bring her down in an hour. That is power. The great Pauline Kael, and not just that thing that she said, but so many other things. To, be, to destroy her as a journalist in an hour with just the truth, with just the facts. That's what every kid now can do. And That's a great, great thing. That is a great thing, and that's why this, whatever the Pentagon had to do with inventing the internet, that's like one of the places our military dollars were well spent, because it has eliminated the filter, it's eliminated the middleman, and now we can talk to each other. You can write me something afterwards and tell me something. Somebody couldn't get in and needed tickets, I just saw that on Twitter, got them tickets. It was that easy. Didn't have to go through the film society. So... I like the internet.
4: I'm uh, Michael, my name is Leslie Harris. Oh, oh Leslie, <laughs> hi. <laughs> How you doing? <laughs> uh, I'm an indie filmmaker and I just wanna say, first of all, your film was wonderful and I think what I got from it was that we're a much better country than we are now and we can be better. And I think that that's a profound statement to make now and I think people will um, leave the, hopefully leave the uh, theater Thinking that they can make a change, Um, I wanted to say that you know, as an independent filmmaker, and talk to you as a director, um, you know, after I did my film, just another girl on the IRT, and it was, and I want to say, like for women filmmakers, I think people don't really understand how difficult it is and how challenging. I made my film in '93, which was a feature, (laughs) and it was distributed by Miramax and won an award at Sundance. And I've been trying to. I wrote a film called I Love Cinema, and it's a film about race. Uh, police brutality and it's a satire and about the media. And it's been really difficult for 10 years to get this film made and to get people to really understand that women can also make satirical films. We can also make films that deal with politics and race and sex. And I would love for you to be in the film because I have a right wing pundit role and I also have a cop (laughs) role. But anyway, I just wanted to, um, I was happy in the film that you spoke about women and I also was very uh, happy that at the end of the Q&A yesterday, you talked about Hollywood and how we need to turn that on ourselves and look at Hollywood and how they treat women and people of color. And my question is, what do you think that you know, people who are established in the, in the uh, Hollywood and who are mostly male and white, how what they can do to you know, help change what is wrong I think, in the uh, Hollywood, how we can open doors for more people of color and women.
3: First of all, did you just offer me a role in your film? <laughs> yes, I
5: did.
3: Is that true, really? Or are you just messing with me? It's true? It's, it's true? a terrible comment. I'll accept, I accept. Oh, no. If you wrote it, I'll do it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm serious. I'm not so, <laughs> let me, she didn't quite explain exactly who she is. Uh, uh, her film, Just Another Girl on the IRT, um, after almost a hundred years of cinema was the uh, first film Distributed in theaters by an American movie studio either major or the mini majors in this case Miramax Before Leslie's film no film by an African-American filmmaker other than a couple of films daughters of the dust whatever that were made for PBS TV movies that got some theatrical but tr- Purely theatrical film you were sitting with the first african-american woman to have a film released by a hollywood studio in the United States You are you are part of cinema history and and uh, We met because I had I set up a foundation after Roger and me and and one of the things I wanted to fund were um, films by uh, african-american women That because there had been none, not a single one, this is 93, so 95 is the 100 year mark of cinema, right? Not a single one in 98 years, African American women make up about 7% of the population. That's 7% of the population that have had no voice in Hollywood for the entire history of cinema. We should all feel, as people part of the industry, a certain sense of shame about that. So I, I wrote a check also uh, for this uh, to be supportive of it and I've done that for other filmmakers and um, and I said on the stage as she referenced yesterday that the top Hollywood films, of all, I mean the Hollywood movies of the last seven years, the New York Times, I don't know if you saw this a couple months ago 1.9% of them were directed by women. Not black women. <laughs> women. 1. 9% It's amazing really that women are so nice <laughs> and Whether <laughs> like, any of us have throats left that they haven't just been ripped out from I mean seriously we're lucky that You know I feel the same way about the younger generation. We all went to college for nearly free I mean those of us who went to a public University, you know it was free right if you went to Berkeley would you pay if you're my age Zero went to SUNY zero City College zero, right? And we've raised a generation of kids where we've now got you give them thirty, forty, a hundred thousand dollars worth of student debt And they're not mad at us We hated our parents for a lot of things <laughs> They're not mad at us, I can't believe it. We raised them to be too nice. But, but seriously, they need to revolt. They need to revolt against us. We created this horrible system for them. And women, those of us, especially men, need to say this and say it over and over and then do something about it. My guild, Writers Guild, Directors Guild, we have to fix this. This is absolutely wrong. This is the most liberal of all industries when you use the word industry in this country. And for it to be so shamelessly white and male, and and let me just say this. I'm not saying that because I'm a liberal making a, a politically correct statement. I'm saying it as a film goer, as an audience member, I'm missing out on her story, their stories, that person. When you block out whole groups of people from the cinema, what are the great films that you and I are missing right now because their voices can't be heard? I want to go to that movie. I want to hear that voice. I'm being denied that voice by a system that's set up to, to give the reins to white men and I'm telling you like I said the other day Anthropologists are not going to look kindly on us. We're going to look like Neanderthals And they're going to say and even the liberal ones The liberal ones let 1.9% 1. of the majority gender make movies It's a form of apartheid folks right when the minority controls everything and the majority gets a bone thrown to them, that's just absolutely wrong. So, anyways, that was more than 20 seconds. (laughs) Thank you, Leslie. I'm going to be in a movie.
0: (laughs) I'll try and make it quick. Um, You had mentioned in the past how the camera is a weapon, and I was wondering what your thoughts are on that for narrative film in comparison with documentary film.
3: Same, exactly the same.
0: And so do you see any differences in how it can be used in, in no. any specifics about that? Okay, great. Thank you
3: No, it's all storytelling. No, it's all storytelling and you can write nonfiction or you can write fiction and, and we both know the examples of the ones that are just amazing, right? And um, and so and I'm just I feel bad that documentary filmmakers have put themselves over at the children's table at the Thanksgiving dinner for so many years because in the other arts you know, pick up the Times book review section a day. There's three times as many reviews of nonfiction books than there are fiction books. Fiction, nonfiction is not the bastard stepchild in in books. Uh, on television, depending on what week, ten of your top twenty shows are going to be nonfiction shows of the top twenty most watched shows. Americans love nonfiction. Some of those shows suck, like you know, so you want to dance with the stars or whatever it's <laughs> called, and some of them are sixty minutes. Americans love nonfiction, and and there should be we should have huge audiences going to nonfiction cinema, and if I that's also on my plate to figure out how to fix that, but documentary filmmakers have to participate in, in fixing that. To what I know, I started talking about Bernard and Barker, talking about how what 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 dis, now I remember what destroyed then the nonfiction cinema, as we entered this decade. Is that the audience went one too many times to the movie theater to and saw a tv doc and said i don't need to spend 12. systematic
2: movie making right,
3: right. Yeah. just yeah. like if you went to, if you went to the lincoln plaza and saw a lifetime movie you know you know the difference right there's no rule book but you know the difference your nose knows the difference and too many tv documentaries have been in movie theaters and and they've they kind of destroyed the movie-going audience that said we could just wait and watch this at home. So other good documentaries that are theatrical documentaries haven't had the audience that they deserve. Funniest documentary I've seen in years, Meet the Patels. Seriously, go see this movie. I think it's still playing here in New York. It's it's really funny and sweet and, and made as a theatrical movie.
6: Hi, thank you, um, Michael. I'm a huge fan of your work. Um, Okay, twenty seconds or less. Here I go. (laughs) I'm gonna try. Um, I was raised by hippie activism parents on a university campus in Canada, and you know we were we were marching. I was marching in diapers on no nuke nukes rallies and things like that. And so you know activism is very important to me. And with your films, you give your voice, and it's amazing work. And this might be too much of a question for you, but I'm um, touching on what the first question person asked in talking about sort of armchair activism. Um, I, I'm at a loss of how to be active now. Just as a person that doesn't make movies, I don't know what I can do anymore. And I find social media, um, when, I, when I try and offer solution-based ideas into conversations, it seems to me that people are more interested in arguing um, than than coming up with ideas. So I don't know, this may be too much of a question, but I'm just curious what you think the common person can do.
3: Very quickly, uh, call the teachers union, uh, look up the name of the principals that are fighting the standardized tests in New York City, stop the standardized tests uh, from being given the students, it'll improve the school district once we stop teaching to that test. If you have uh, students in public schools organize with the other parents to get better food at lunch, they're putting poison in your kids. Um, uh, constantly talk to people about uh, this industrial, this prison industrial complex that we have. Just talk to people, talk to people at work, talk to people in your family, talk to people in the neighborhood, talk, talk, talk about these issues. You know, you go into a pub in in Ireland, you you go into a bar in France, it's nothing but political discussions. I've never had a political discussion in a bar in this country. Um, And ask any foreigner who's in the audience, right, how different it is to go to a pub here than to go to a pub someplace else where they will argue politics deep into the night, and that we don't do. So start doing it. We just some of us just have to start doing. It. The only reason we have the game the the gay marriage thing went away, is because gay people came out of the closet. More and more came out over the last ten years to their parents, to their friends, their coworkers, or neighbors. And what guess what? No horns, no tail. You know, nobody threatened. Why, I love that person, I actually love this person. Oh my God, you can't love the person, you're not allowed to be married to the person you love? That's just inherently unfair. You don't have to be a Democrat or Republican or anything to say that. So that changed because gay people made it change. Gay people didn't give up once it was made the law of the land in in all those states. They kept going, but it was an individual thing. It wasn't necessarily a big movement, but individually everybody just kept coming out. And then the hate started to sift away once they were public. So I mean, there's always just start thinking of little things that you can do. Um, and, and somebody, I get you know, make a film about this, or you, know, you, the, you have these cameras now. <laughs> Everybody's got a camera. I saw this film, uh, Tangerine. Um, you know, I was amazed that
2: uh, yeah, it's, it's shot with an iPhone.
3: Shot with an iPhone. Slightly souped up. Yep. yep. And ten minutes into it, you've forgotten about the gimmick yep. of the iPhone, and it's like a good story. It's a movie. <laughs> it's a movie. Yeah. And a good one. Yeah. Yep. So make a movie. Don't say you can or you don't know how or whatever. I, I come from Flint, Michigan. I had a, a, a high school education. I didn't, you know, I mean, I just did it. I didn't know anything, you know, but I didn't. That, so don't let whatever you don't have stop you and don't worry about looking foolish or having an Upper West sider laugh at you because you're acting <laughs> foolish. You know, just
2: do it. And also, don't worry about being polite.
3: And don't worry about being, yeah. Because you're a good person, you are polite. But sometimes you can't be polite to the, the thing that's crushing your neck. You know you have to you have to stand up and say it. I mean, this is what this is like you know the black lives matter They like they, they try to get these Democrats. Can you just say it? Just say it? Say it and sound like you mean it that black lives matter, you know, and so they say they, so what does Hillary say? Hillary goes well. Yes Uh, uh black lives matter white lives matter all lives matter <laughs> no 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 white man has the boot of seven cops on his skull in Staten Island being killed. Stop it. You have to say the truth. Bernie Sanders. Bernie, will you say it? And he... <laughs> I love Colbert's description of Bernie. He looks like... He's like the guy that always oh, in the airport that just missed his plane. <laughs> and so it's like, So Bernie finally... Bernie's frustrated. You know, they've come up on the stage, right? And he goes... I'll try to do my best impersonation of them. <laughs> Black lives, of course they matter. That's it. <laughs> of course they matter. <laughs> no, Bernie. <laughs> Come on. It's okay. You can just say it. You know, it's it's it's. Things are changing. The young people are changing it. They don't have a problem saying it. And the and the 16 to 35 year olds are are gonna are turning this thing around right now because they're so much less haters amongst the kids that we've raised. And that's the one good thing that our generation did. We have not raised haters. And so it will be better in the, in the coming years.
2: Michael, thank
3: you. I know. I'm sorry I'm talking. No, thank you. <laughs> thank
1: you, everybody. Thank you very much. The close-up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org. F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C The Film Society of Lincoln Center Film Lives Here